Hello, friends. Welcome back to Ill Natured. We have missed you guys. This is Michelle. And I'm Alyssa. excited for the final part i think question mark yeah uh explanation point um <laughs> but i literally forgot how to do this <laughs> gotta do what pod man oh it's been so long we needed a break though y'all the holidays i know my moms my girls that listen y'all know what i'm talking about it's just intense Phew, it's intense, but it's we made right. it. We made it. Yeah, happy new year, y'all. That's right. It is, it's 2023. It'll be 2022 for the next. And it's all I'm going to write. Wait, a month and a half, two blah, months. Blah, blah. Yep. Part three, guys. We're back better than ever. And we're ready to close Anne-Marie Fahey series out. Really quick before we start, I am super pissed. Spill it, girl. I started this part, the final part, um, and found a freaking movie on this case. Oh, so of course I watched it, but I was, was mad. Was it a good movie? It was like an 80s movie. It was older, but I liked it. I mean, it was in right. early 2000s, I think, so it wasn't it was too so old, bad. but I really liked it. Um, it was based off of the book by Anne Rule, and I watched it on Air Rule's the best. Yes. Oh, Yes. <laughs> Um, and it's, I mean, it's fairly accurate. There's a few things in there that are, you know, different, but, right. um, it's called and never let her go. It's like I said, it's on YouTube. It's starring Mark Harmon, who I love. Oh, I love Mark Harmon too. He's Thomas Capano though. So you're going to like hate him in Aww, the movie. Dang it. I know, but you love him. And then Catherine him. Morris as Anne-Marie Fahey. Who I, I don't know. Um, but y'all definitely go watch it, especially if you enjoy this series or you love Anne Roll or Mark Harmon. Um, Even though he's a bad guy. Yeah, I mean, but it's a. I mean, I enjoyed watching it and seeing it play out. That's awesome. So yeah, that could kind of put it put it all together for us. Yeah, like especially it, because homework. I was about to say it's all because you know I did this in three different parts. But that's right. It, all together is really yeah. interesting. So, homework, do it, guys. Shout out if you watch it. So, we left off with Tom finally being arrested for the murder of Anne-Marie Fahey. Now, the media went nuts, of course, yeah. and printed in the paper about the cooler, but left out the detail that it had been shot with a gun because they needed to keep something, you know, some things close to the chest so yep. not just any old cooler would come in with a gunshot. You know, they needed to be... 100% right. sure that this was the cooler if it had ever been found. Yep. Now, the story caught the attention of Dave Shepard, who was an electrical engineer with the company Onboard Chemical Company in Newark. When he learned that a large white cooler was possibly involved in Amory's disappearance, he remembered that his co-worker had pulled a large cooler out of the water at the Indian River outlet on July 4th, 1996. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This was approximately 100 miles away from where Jerry and Tom supposedly had dumped Anne-Marie's body. 
Mm. And one very important thing Dave remembered about this cooler was there was gunshots in the cooler. Even though that had not been mentioned anywhere, he decided to call police anyways and tell them what he knew. Right. Smart. Because in his mind, he's thinking, well, police didn't mention, you know, bullet holes, so this might not be the cooler. But, I mean, I guess it won't hurt to call. So, when Dave calls and he starts describing the cooler with the bullet hell, bullet hell, <laughs> bullet hell, the bullet hole and all that, Eric Albert literally, like, shit his pants. Um, he was so excited. So, Albert and a Wilmington police officer headed to the home of Ken Chubb, the man who- Chubb? Yeah. Sorry. You know, I love a good name. Uh, you are all about the names. <laughs> um, and he had found the cooler and actually kept it. So they like were about to use or yes. Well, okay, Chubb. Uh, I mean, he just figured somebody. It was like a fishing cooler mm-hmm. with bullet holes in it. Okay, Mister Chubb. So anyway, mm-hmm. um, Ken said he and his son were fishing when they saw something white bobbing in the water, mm-hmm. and of course it was a cooler with a missing handle and lid. Ken said, quote, it had two bullet holes in it and sort of amazed us. We were questioning why would anybody shoot it. It looked brand new. It looked like a brand new cooler, end quote. Mm-hmm. Ken also told them that when he first got the cooler that there was a pinkish color stain in the bottom, but considering fish bleed, he didn't think anything about it. He just assumed it was a fisherman's cooler. The bolt holes were still there in the cooler, but it was filled with fiberglass epoxy so Ken could reuse it. The barcode on the cooler was luckily still on, and they matched it to the one Tom bought from the Sports nice. Authority store. So this was the exact same cooler that Tom bought. Mm-hmm. The cooler that was found with two bullet holes on it, which would corroborate Jerry's story. Mm-hmm. And a pinkish color tint. I wonder how much. Like, I wonder if, if it was, like, a little bit, a lot. You know. I don't know, because we still don't really know how he technically murdered her. We still don't. We have no body. They never found her. Uh-uh, they said even if they could pinpoint the exact place what? that they dumped the body, that there would be nothing left. No. Because they were so far out in the ocean, there was nothing there, and they've never found the weapon either. They would assume that he shot her. Right. The bullet holes. Yeah. No, 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 no. Before she was put in the cooler, Felicia. But why why are there bullet holes in the cooler? Okay, let's rewind part two. Mm-hmm. Um, when they were trying to sink the cooler, they shot bullet holes in it thinking That's it was right. gonna sink. And it would fill up with water. Okay, yes. okay, thank you. So two different bullet holes. Mm-hmm. But the ones that I would assume she was shot because he got uh, Debbie McIntyre to buy that gun for him. Right. And that's right. never been recovered either. So I would assume. Matthew Pleasant, who was a criminal investigator for the U.S. Coast Guard who operated underwater son- sonar equipment, <clears throat> offered his help and services in the search for Anne Marie's body. Pleasant, the guy who owned the boat, and an officer took Jerry's old, the exact old boat, you know, out. And follow Jerry's directions on what he remembered about the morning when they dumped her body. They attempted to retrace their steps that day. And they knew spotting the body would be difficult. But they hoped that they would be able to find the anchors that were attached to her body. Right. Um, unfortunately, though, they were not able to find anything. Especially because of how much time had passed. And, I mean, the moving ocean 
right. affects it too. So there was one more search done in June of 98, but neither her remains or the anchors, the gun, nothing was ever found, and she was legally declared dead. <laughs> now back to Tom, who is sitting in prison now, had been put into solitary Ooh. confinement for his own protection. I mean, he did help lock up and prosecute a large percentage of who he was now sharing the courtyard right. with. So That's they right. said, mm, let's not him get, let's not, not get let him, him get, get snuffed out. Yeah. Okay. So while in solitary confinement, he was allowed out of his cell for one hour a day alone and was in his cell the rest of the time. So with all his spare time on his hands, he, he filled it with, um, you know, Writing love letters to Debbie McIntyre a lot. Oh, Ew. and Susan, his other mistress. Um, reading books. But he was only allowed to read six books a month. Which I thought was interesting. Yeah. Where'd that number come from? Six? Well, you don't want to give them too much pleasure in prison. No, I would say one book a month. You oh. jerk. Okay, well, yeah, whatever. Anyways, so even though he was in prison for murder, Debbie wrote him letters and talked to him every single day. There was no doubt in her mind that he was innocent, and she believed every single word that he said. On one occasion, Debbie asked Tom what he did with the gun she bought for him, and he got short and said, don't talk about stuff like this over the phone here. He continuously was asking her to sleep with other men and tell him about it. You know, he's... Do what? Oh, yeah, that's right. He's a deviant. He's a little creep creep. Yeah. What are those called? Cocks? That's what guys... Cocks? No, no, Do what now? I think it's called a cuck. Sis, I have no idea. A man whose wife is sexually unfaithful regarded as an object of derision. But I think they like watching. They get off on watching their wife have sex with other men. Yeah. Um, Anyways. They're cucks. You learned a new word today. I like it. I like it. I'm excited. (laughs) Excited that I learned that new word. Yeah. That I'll never use. Yeah. Uh, Not very often, probably. Mm -hmm. But anyways. In one letter, he wrote, quote, Dear Deb, it's 11.57, and with any luck, you're naked right now, and on... Uh, y'all, this is about to get real socially graphic. So. Trigger warning. Make sales. And I'm also going to read exactly what he said. So do it. Yeah, I'm here for it. I hope nobody listens to this. <laughs> you want me to read it? No. <laughs> <laughs> with any luck, you're naked right now and on all fours with your dinner date making you fuck like crazy. Phew. Yeah. On all fours. That's doggy style, in case anyone was... And he says doggy style. Oh. Actually, you say something in your Monday night letter, which arrived tonight, about having your period. Okay, so maybe you're naked anyway, so he can admire your magnificent body. And then continues on with really, really more gross stuff, but I'm not... I'm just... That's enough. You know, you get a point. You get the point. And he... And she, and, she, and he says something about her being on her period. Oh, okay, and keep in mind, like, he knows good I and damn well that, like, they're opening his letters and reading and this. And he get, probably gets off on that, too. Yeah. Uh, oh, November. I'm going to lose my snack. <laughs> mm. It looks gross anyways. That is ambrosia, ma'am. The food of the gods. Ambrosia and custard. It is delicious. 
Okay. Mm-hmm. On November 22nd, the grand jury decided that they had enough evidence to indict Thomas Campano with first-degree murder of Anne-Marie Fahey. His trial was set to start early the next year. The investigators mm-hmm. were on the hunt for more evidence and were certain this was a premeditated act, which, of course, I agree with. Like, I do Agreed. 100% believe mm-hmm. that he murdered her because... And he had planned it because she rejected him and was getting right. rid of him. And, had and she had her own boot. Yeah. Right. And she was not having sex with her new man in front of him, which was probably a source of contention on his part. Probably. Mm-hmm. So, in February of 1998, Tom's trial was scheduled to begin, and his attorneys believed that the testimony of Debbie would benefit them. In a letter to Debbie, Tom wrote that his lawyer said she was an important witness to the defense and an impressive witness. Impressive. So he's telling her all these in this letter, kind of hyping her up. Mm-hmm. And his attorneys were banking on her love for Tom being so deep that she would lie for him under oath. Or at I'm all. Now. You know, lie for him at all. That's right. And she did. When she was speaking with Colm Connolly, you know, one of the main prosecutors... Debbie said that the recent crime wave had scared her, so she decided she needed a gun to get to get a gun, even though Tom was not happy about it. But ended up getting rid of it because she didn't want her kids to find it. So she's saying the whole reason she went and bought this gun was because she was scared. Mm-hmm. But Tom but wasn't got- happy about it. All right, ma'am. Where did you put it? Where'd you get rid of it at? Well, let me tell you. Back? Okay. She said she took the gun apart and put two pieces into two separate garbage bags and put the bags into a trash can on June 10th. Two mm. weeks before Emery went missing, coincidentally. Yeah. Also, who the F would get rid of a gun that way, man? That's weird. Mm-mm. If you're a real whatever, you take it to the police station. A real whatever? I mean, a real one, you know. <laughs> a real law-abiding citizen. If you're a real one, you'll <laughs> take it to the um, police. Po-po. So, either way, this interview did do some good because throughout, their in- throughout the interview, the investigators had told Debbie some information that truly made her question if Tom was being truthful with her about, um, uh-huh. you know. Murdering yeah. His other lover. Yeah. Debbie said, quote, The volcano erupted on January 28th. There was a flash in my head halfway through that interview. That's the only way I can describe how I felt. The time okay. I knew. For a second, I thought you were talking about like a literal volcano, and I was like, what? Go ahead. Sorry. Oh, my lanta. No, a volcano literally did not erupt in her okay, head. Good. But once I betrayed him or rejected him. Oh, wait. You made me skip a line. I'm so sorry. I'm thinking about a real volcano. I'm still thinking about it. I'm picturing a volcano erupting. Like a real one. Like if, if they were beside a volcanic mountain and it erupted. Okay. Go, let's move past They're it. not. You need to focus. Mm-hmm. Quit eating your ambrosia. Mm-hmm. It's making you space out. <laughs> Something's happening. <laughs> so, the Tom I knew was not this man who would kill this woman. But once I betrayed him or rejected him, so to speak, I woke up and realized the position I was in. Because I loved him, and I believed him and trusted him, and I was compromising myself, my safety, and that of my children. Mm. It was like a volcano erupting, end quote. Mm. And that was only the beginning of Tom's strong team falling apart and all of his alibis and, you know, like, his his plan on becoming yep, yep, yep. innocent, you know? 
yeah, on becoming innocent. Yeah. Uh, Whatever. So six months before the trial began, Joe Hurley, one of Tom's lawyers, up and quit. And the reason he gave was because in April of 1998, he was at a funeral mass and said he had a moment of clarity. He said he never asked Tom if he killed Anne-Marie because he didn't want to know, and Tom never told him, but based on the evidence that was available to him, said, quote, I can only surmise that there was something making me feel like I was falling into an evil pit in this conversation, if that's what you have with God. It went, Joe, you're not like this. You can't be this way. Mm. I think I was probably facing the reality that Capano was, in fact, guilty of premeditated murder. Yes. Killing a human being? No. That's the end of a friendship. End quote. Right. Yeah. A good, good, good on you, ma'am. Yeah. Well, good so basically, Joe Hurley said that he was in church during a funeral mass and said that God spoke to him. But even though Tom had never admitted to killing Anne-Marie, Joe... His, I mean, Tom Capano's own lawyer came to the conclusion based on the evidence that his client was, in fact, guilty of murder. I mean, and then, like, says, you know, no matter how good of friends we are, him murdering an innocent woman was the end of it. Like, I can't be your friend. I can't be your lawyer. Goodbye. Joe Hurley never saw or spoke to Tom ever again after he quit his legal team. Nice. Now, once Joe left... Tom hired Eugene Moore Jr., a Wilmington attorney, who was excited at first to be representing Tom until he got to know him mm. and the horror of a human being he was. Mm. Moore said soon after being hired on, he was like, what a freaking mistake this was. But he was afraid to quit because of how it would look having two of Tom's attorneys quit. Tom also hired Joe O'Terry and Jack O'Donnell to work alongside Charlie Oberly to cre- create what Tom thought would be another OJ dream team. Mm-hmm. But it was far from a dream. One of his attorneys later recalled that Tom was a difficult client to say the least. He basically thought he was going to be calling the shots from behind the scenes and his legal team would just be speaking for him in court. Right. He argued with everything his lawyer suggested. It even, like, his lawyer even said that he wanted to take advice from jailhouse lawyers, quote-unquote, more than he did the advice of those he was paying for, which was so dumb. And, like, I can't believe, but you can just see how unraveling he's just, like, freaking yep. out. He yep. doesn't know what to do. Yep. O'Terry said it was a problem with him being a lawyer himself and having tried cases that had made him, quote-unquote, an expert. Moore said it was one of the most depressing and disappointing professional experiences of his life. Wow. That's a lot. You're telling me, saying that there were two sides of Tom. The kind, giving, generous Tom, and then the Tom that was ruthless in terms of getting what he wants. Mm-hmm. He could be closed-minded and determined to get what to get what his mind was set on. And he felt that once he had done something nice for you, that you owed him undying uh-huh. loyalty. That's how his lawyer saw the situation with Anne-Marie, and he felt like he rescued her, so how dare she want to leave him and be with somebody else. Yep. So, unfortunately for Tom, he's not fooling anybody. Right. At this point, it's all out there. And his, I mean, like I said, it's just like his facade, his good face is just falling apart. Crumbling. Crumbling. He and he felt 
he felt the same way about Debbie. And up until the night before she was going to testify at the bell hearing, she really was going to go on the stand and lie for him. Like, she really thought that mm. he, like, she was there. She was going to be by his side. Yep. But she had a change of heart the morning of. In the beginning of February, she wrote a letter to Tom saying she was not going to be seeing him the day in court. She told him she was not willing to risk getting into serious trouble for him. And said that this was the first time in their entire relationship that she was going to do something for herself. Debbie was not there to testify, but Jerry and Lewis were there telling their stories, and the judge denied Tom Bell. So that was good. Mm-hmm. By the end of the month, even though she decided to ultimately do the right thing, Debbie was forced to resign from the school she had worked at for years because of her involvement with oh, the case. That sucked. On February 27th, Debbie met with the prosecution and got a blanket immunity. She was to admit that she lied to the police and swear she had nothing to do with Emery's murder, then give her promise that she would fully cooperate with police. And even though she was still, like, at this time, still madly in love with Tom and knew this would end up hurting his chance of being set free, she in- she ultimately agreed. This bitch was still madly in love oh, with yeah. Tom. Oh, yeah. But she's, like, pushing her heart aside and doing what's right. Which I thought, like, for her. Like, she's standing up for the woman that her man murdered. Right. Right. So, she also agreed to start recording her and Tom's phone calls for police. Nice. Now, of course, Tom was not happy when he found out about the deal and knew Debbie was not, quote-unquote, on his side anymore. So, he was in search of people that would be. Nick Perello, a longtime drug addict and someone who was in and out of prison his entire life, ended up in a cell next to Tom. Mm-hmm. And Tom asked Perello to call Debbie and threaten her to keep her mouth shut because he knew his calls were being recorded now uh-uh. and listened to. Yeah. But that was before Debbie had decided to completely drop Tom. So then his request got a little bit heavier. So at this time, Debbie, like I said, still in love with him. But she is working for police. Tom knows that Debbie made a deal with police. So he's pissed and he's coming after now, her how now. how does he know, you reckon? Like, how did he find out? It's my daughter? I'm sure his lawyers. Lawyers, yeah. Mm-hmm. This bitch squealed on you. Because they have, you know, they get to know the witnesses. That's and right. All that stuff. Yeah. So I'm sure if yep. it wasn't his lawyers, it was somebody on the outside. I mean, I'm sure somebody heard about it, you know. Mm-hmm. And with him being inside the system, sort of, you know. Yeah. It was easy for him to find out in information. Mm-hmm. But after Debbie's deal was made on the 27th, Tom asked Perello if he had any friends on the outside that would be willing to break into her house to send her a message. Oh. Perello took this to his advantage and wrote his lawyer, telling the plans of what Tom wanted him to do. Mm. So, Tom... Gets this guy that's in a cell beside him. Right. And thinks that he's going to have, like, some criminal buddy of his on the outside break into Debbie's house. But Porello's like, mm, I think I can use this to my advantage and get my sentence shorted. So, I'm going to kind of screw you over because who are you? Right. Yeah, you and probably I'm put me in prison. Yeah, you right. probably put me in prison. Okay. So, Porello met with Colm Conley at the beginning of March and showed him a four-page four map of Debbie's house that was hand-drawn by Tom Capano, hmm. along with a ton of different information. So, was he planning on having him kill her? Um, or I just scare her? 
I think just scare her. Mm. Um, sort of. Hold on. Hold your horses with that. So, you know, he wrote down information such as, like, her security code, which door that he would need to go in. He gave him details such as, um, like, he wanted him to go in there and smash the floor-length mirror in the master bedroom and remove a plastic bag of sex toys. Okay. And he also wanted all the art in her home either destroyed or stolen. Okay. So, as far as I know, she wasn't even going to be there, but she just he just wanted somebody to break into her house and kind of scare her. Yep. Mess some stuff Mm-hmm. After being notified of what Tom was doing, on planning on doing, Debbie stopped opening Tom's letters at all. So, when... Calm Conley approached Debbie and was like, listen, I want to give you these. This is what Tom's, like, he's literally planning on, you, you like, getting your house broken into. Right. And so Debbie's all emotional after that, and she completely stops opening his letters and responding to him. Hmm. That was not the only jailhouse informant that came forward about Tom trying to get his revenge, though. So, Wilfredo Rosa told police that Tom asked him how much it would cost to get his brother Jerry taken out. And I'm not talking about taking out to a nice dinner. I'm talking about taking out, like, killed dead. Yeah. Trying to kill his own brother. Yeah. And wanted Debbie added to to that hit list. So, he was pissed that these people... And let's just remember how ugly this guy is. I mean, I don't know. That's all I think about. Every time I think about anything. Me too. He's ugly. Like, he doesn't even seem like he would be a charming fella. No. Like, I I, I don't understand. No, he's not. Y'all look up a picture. I'll refresh your memory. Hardly any have. I'll post more. You've posted some of her. I've been slacking, but it's because it's Christmas. It's Christmas, y'all. We're slacking. I am slacking. Like, like that is me as a is that a adjective? No, just slack. As a human being, as a human being, I'm just a slacker. Jury selection was on October sixth, nineteen ninety eight, and the judge presiding over the case was Judge William Swain Lee. After the jury was selected, there were three young, attractive women as jurors, and even though his legal team suggested that they should dismiss them, he, as in Tom, insisted on them staying. Now Joe O'Terry said off the record that Tom thought he was going to make them fall in love with him and charm them into thinking he was not guilty. <laughs> Yeah, that was his whole like game plan and keeping come on, young, dude. Good-looking <clears throat> women on the jury was like, oh, they're gonna fall in love with me and <laughs> Gross. We'll have a hang like a hung jury or whatever, at least. Gross. And on October twenty sixth of nineteen ninety eight, a Monday, the murder trial officially started. Now, of course, as part of their job, the defense was there to defend. And Joe Terry addressed the court at first, as you would expect, you know, telling the jury that in trial they should expect to hear testimonies that Anne-Marie Fahey was dead and that Tom did not murder her premeditated or even at all. Mm. And then continued on by saying that she died by a tragic accident that only one other person who was there knows anything that happened. And then says that Tom and Jerry only helped dispose of the body. Now, this was a big deal because up until this very second, Tom had zero idea about, you know, 
quote unquote, had zero idea about where she was located at. But now, right. you know, he had lied about two police about the entire deal and all this other stuff. But now there's somebody that he knows who killed her and he was just protecting them that whole night. Mm-hmm. And this person was Debbie McIntyre. They were planning on ba- blaming it on her. And on the stand, when she had to testify, one of the team, quote, you know, Eugene Moore asked her if she showed up to Tom's the night of the 27th with a gun. And she was like, no. She came back from swim class and stayed home until she went to work the next day. trying to blame this lady. Yeah. And the thing is, is, like, they're throwing this on everybody, like, the morning in court. Uh, Like, this, like, where did she come from? On December 16, 1998, Tom got on the stand to testify, defying his lawyer's advice. What an idiot. Uh, yeah, and you're going to really be like, what an idiot in a minute. Mm-hmm. Um, he told them, like, guys, I'm going to get on the stand. And his team said, bad idea, bro. And he was like, don't no. Don't do it. Yeah. And his, he was like, no, you guys don't understand. Like, I'm a really likable guy. And they're like, no, you're literally you're not. not. <laughs> Yeah, and he said, no, they'll love me. And they're like, no, they won't. So they're going back and forth. <laughs> they'll love me, I promise. Yeah, but they literally will not. But he insisted on come on, getting, uh, I mean, he insisted on getting on the stand. So here we are. Um, he started his testimony by claiming he was not a spoiled child who was handed everything, but came from blue-collar ancestors who worked hard to build a business. How far back are these ancestors, sir? <laughs> Right? I mean, come on. And you, in fact, sir, are. Just because your family works hard does not mean you're a hard worker. And a good guy. Yeah. yeah. You're literally a brat. You're yeah. a spoiled brat. Liar. We hate you. Yeah. He claimed that he never told Jerry about an extortionist, but mm-hmm. that the money was instead for Anne Marie because she wanted to get into a treatment facility that was expensive that she couldn't afford. He said that Jerry wanted to know why he needed the money and was throwing a ton of different stuff at him, so Tom was just brushing him off. Mm-hmm. And, he, you know, like, he was, like, saying, oh, is it because of this? Is it because of this? Is it because of this? And he was finally like, yeah, that's, that's what it is, you know? Yeah, I got you. And he did not ask Jerry for a gun, but it was offered to him, and he said mm. he took it to calm Jerry's nerves, but returned it unused afterwards because he was not comfortable having it in the house with his girls. Mm. Then, regardless of how he felt, this is going to make him look like a boob. Oh, <laughs> sorry. Oh, sorry. I was confused. Okay. This is what he said. Then... Regardless of how he thought this was going to make him look, Tom said he did have a conversation where he said he would be open to murder or possible the possibility of committing murder if someone threatened his family. Mm. Now, his attorneys were wincing as he was making this comment and shaking his head, but Tom just continued on. Yeah, of course. But, you know, like, he's thinking, like, oh, of course I'm going to kill somebody. Like, of course any logical person. Like, if someone comes in my house right now, I'll kill them. But when you're on the stand for murder, we probably shouldn't be saying, I'll kill somebody, regardless of the... Yeah, that's not a very smart uh, statement. No. Um, He's such a weird... Weird feller. He's a conundrum. Um, But here we are again, where you just see his... He's just unraveling. Uh He literally has lost his brain. The court goes on recess, and during this recess, Jack O'Donnell, one of Tom's lawyers, literally runs outside and immediately lights up a cigarette. 
and the press clearly sees a distressed lawyer, so they run over to him and start crying for answers. And this is how O'Donnell responded, quote, if he had just kept his effing mouth shut, we had either had an acquittal or a hung jury, um, but he had to talk, um, end quote. Young. Like, hallelujah for this cocky son of a bee, because he ends up screwing himself over throughout this entire thing. Uh-huh. It was nothing that nobody else did or said. It was him alone. Uh-huh. Day two of his testimony started, and he basically just started shit-talking Debbie McIntyre for hours upon hours, uh-huh. claiming he never even wanted to start an affair with her, and she was the one who initiated it. He spoke horribly of her and dogged her in front of the jury, and after several hours of him just being a complete douche... He finally started talking about June 27th, the night that's actually in question. Yeah. Now, everything I'm about to say is from his words and his words alone. Mm-hmm. Anne-Marie was in a bad mood because she felt that they were overcharging her for her medication, which is why she would have seemed a little quiet or off at supper at Panorama. Okay. They went back to her apartment to try and watch TV, but it was too hot because the AC wasn't working. Mm -hmm. That's when they decided to go to Tom's rental house to have a quiet night in. And just as they were settling in on the couch, Tom's phone started ringing and it was Debbie wanting to come over. Mm -hmm. Tom said he had company and then hung the phone up. And he said the next thing he knew, Debbie was in his house and like going bananas. Mm -hmm. She was upset at seeing Tom and Anne-Marie together, so she whips out a gun threatening to kill herself when Tom jumped off the couch to try and disarm Debbie. The gun accidentally goes off and shot Anne-Marie right in the head. Dude. Oh, he's so full of himself. So arrogant. I hate it. Wow at the story. Yeah. Um. The wow. Arrogance. The yeah. arrogance. He said they tried reviving her but knew she was gone, so they decided... So he decided, you know, a quick decision... Um, to protect Debbie since she was there and there was nothing that could be done for Anne-Marie. What do you think? Mm-hmm. I think it's bullshit. Total bullshit. Um, yeah, I don't believe it for a second. Tom truly thought that he had come up with some great explanation to everything, but he didn't. No. First of all, we know that in the beginning, Tom said that he checked out the AC and it was fine. Right. But now it was hot in her apartment, mm-hmm. so they ended up back at no, his house. No. There was a lot of evidence pointing to Debbie not even being at Tom's right. that night. No so, involvement. Yeah, so there was no way she was barging in at him. She's trying to get back at Debbie. She's trying to get back at Debbie because she's not covering for him. Exactly. And he needs another, like, because he, what well, he planned. Uh, I thought Gross. it was going to be a good old ice cold Dr. Pepper here. It's the sweet one. Oh! Anyways. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sorry. Little Dr. Pepper break. I liked it. I'm here for it. Unfortunately for Tom, it was now the prosecution's turn mm-hmm. to cross-examine. Him, right? Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And Colm Connolly, who literally, like, First of all, I don't know if I've made it very apparent throughout this podcast, but Tom hated, hated, hated Colm Connolly. Mm-hmm. And now he was about to get ready to question him. Yep. So Tom or Colm started asking Tom about the contradiction on how exactly the gun first went off. You know, mm-hmm. he first said that she dropped it 
and then he took it out of her hands. And then, you know, Tom rambled on for a few seconds and said that he took it or she gave it to him, but he couldn't remember exactly. It wasn't an important detail. Mm-hmm. Calm fire back saying, shootings occur in your living room all the time? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, it should be an important detail. Like, that yeah. should, like, that whole incident should be something you should never forget, like, anything about. Exactly. Of course, most people probably looked at this and they were raising their brow because this wasn't exactly the most effective technique if you're trying to get answers out of somebody. But Cole wasn't after answers at this point. You know, he was... Point. That was so Southern. Oh my gosh, I loved it. I wanted to keep rolling, but I couldn't help that. Point. You know, literally someone that just slips out of my mouth. I like, it. I literally can't help. I'm here for it. I think our listeners are probably here for it. If they can hear it, understand. Uh huh. It's good stuff. Keep rolling. <laughs> okay. I don't even know where I was at. <laughs> Me neither. He was being cross examined, I know. He wanted Tom to crack in front of him and the entire courtroom. Yeah. And it seemed to sort of work. Colm definitely got Tom riled up. Tom became very argumentative and defensive at this point, and the judge had to interrupt him multiple times to tell Tom to settle down. Conley also decided to play back a call in between Tom and Debbie, where Debbie said she told the authorities everything, and Tom seemed agitated and stressed with her about it. Mm -hmm. Conley said, if everything happened as you claimed, why wouldn't you be happy she told the story? Mm -hmm. He's like, that means you'll be set free, you can still have a career in your Uh family. Uh Uh-huh. And then, Conley then brings up that Tom used his daughters to impede the investigation. That literally just flipped Tom's switch. And his team could tell all over his face. So, they called for a quick talk. They wanted to go to the bench really fast. So... They stepped up to the bench. Tom slaps his mic away from him and started, like, just talking to his lawyers, but verbally just kicking Colm's ass. Basically, like, just cussing, like, at him. And, like, keep in mind the jury's witnessing this entire thing. Uh Like, he's not whispering. I'm sure the entire courtroom could probably hear almost everything he's saying. Well, for the prosecution, of course. Which is another, you know, reason 85,000 how Mm -hmm. Tom screws his own self. Right. When the questioning resumed, Colm picked up, picked back up with the subject of Tom's daughters. And Tom, I suppose, had enough because he started to scream on the stand mm. in mm. the courtroom I at Colm. Seal that fate, buddy. Yeah. He was telling him he was a heartless, gutless, soulless disgrace of a human being. Mm. Conley tried responding and Colm or Tom continued to scream at him, and Judge Swainley had him removed from the courtroom because of how insane he was acting. Yeah. This guy's definitely capable of killing someone. Oh, yeah. Like, that's probably all the jury needed to see. The police are basically dragging this dude out of the courtroom, and he's looking back, still yelling at Colm about being a liar and all sorts of stuff. Mm. Judge Swain Lee later said he could understand why the topics of his daughter would be sensitive, but he was shocked at how little it took for Tom to lose his cool on the stand. Mm. I mean, look at Ted Bundy. He was his own lawyer, smiling, having a great time in court. Yeah. This is literally the place you put on your best face uh-huh. and fake it till you make it, yep. especially if you're on trial for murder. Yep. But Tom, being a lawyer himself, just completely blew up, forgot everything he was supposed to do, and it didn't take 
long when Conley got to question him. So, anywho, the trial continued for 12 more weeks. And Golly. Yeah, it was a long trial. Um, I think they ended up bringing, you know, like the... All kinds of... Yeah, I mean, there was a lot to mm-hmm. hear. Yeah. A lot of drama to go through, too, I'm sure. Yeah. The jury was sent to a Wilmington hotel so that they could deliberate. Overall, the jury found Jerry a surprisingly good witness, but were unsure about Debbie just because Tom's team used her so much in their benefit throughout the trial. Yeah. One of the jurors, a young woman in her 20s named Erin Riley, said, quote, I could see her coming into Capano's home and doing it. The prosecution made her look like a weak, fragile person, and I don't think she's that. Part of me also could see why Capano wouldn't want everything about him coming out. Everybody knowing he was a, such a sleazeball, and you know the old saying, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned, end quote. Mm-hmm. So basically, this juror, Aaron Riley, was saying, I mean, I could see Debbie coming in there acting like a fool because she's pissed yeah. at her lover. Yeah. Okay. They also had an exact exact replica of the gun that was allegedly used so they could reenact the shooting. Of course, no bullets, but the right. prosecution said it was physically impossible for Tom to jump off the couch to get Debbie to redirect the gun as fast as he did. Right. Two jurors attempted this and proved that it couldn't be done unless the person who was raising the gun did it so slow. But why would Debbie have raised it? I'll tell y'all, that story has no merit in my mind. No, I'm not either. even treating it like it's real life. And that's what I'm about to get to in a second. Like, what the actual yeah. crap. But anyways... They also attempted to load the clip in the gun, which was a twenty-two, I believe, and said that they were a little shocked at how much strength it took mm. and how much strength it took to pull the trigger. And some women jurors couldn't even do it. Now, pl- to play devil's advocate here, mm-hmm. those women must have been very puny women. No offense, ladies, but I have not found a gun I couldn't shoot. We can. I'm saying. I've shot pistols, rifles, shotguns, all, I mean, like, all of it. Oh, I can't shoot. My husband's gun. Really? Mm-mm. It doesn't have a safety. You just have to pull the clip back real hard. I can't, I can't load a bullet in the chamber. Mm-mm. I have very weak hands, though. Okay, interesting. Like I always have. And so, yeah, our our best weapon, I can't shoot it. But, I, hey, if you're listening and you want to rob me, I got lots of weapons I can shoot. Just not that good. Huh. I haven't found one I couldn't shoot. And I'm, I feel like I'm a fairly little person. Yeah. So, like, I'm 5'2", 125 pounds. So, I don't think that's a good enough reason for her to be ruled out. No. Okay. Um, that whole story was made up in three seconds as a last-minute exactly. resort to save Tom's ass and shouldn't have been spent much time on anyways, like exactly. you said. Mm-hmm. But I was more than likely still in the womb when this was going on, so my opinion doesn't really matter, I suppose. Right, right, right. And I was like, what? This was Eight, in 99? No, I, I was like 12. They still didn't care what your opinion was, no offense. Hell no. <laughs> they did not care at all. But the next thing that was this, the next thing that talked about was huge. And I'm not just talking about the size. Now, the exact cooler that was used was brought in. Now, let's go back to the young woman juror, Erin Riley. She was roughly the same size as Anne Marie. So, they had some brilliant idea for Riley to try and get into the cooler. So strange. It was physically possible 
But the body would have had to have been stuffed in, possibly broken bones, manipulation you know of the body. In. You know it was stuffed in. These men right. had no, he, Tom Cabano has no regard for anything. Which is he precisely what this shows. Yeah. It doesn't, like, I think some people would have looked at this and been like, ooh, that means it couldn't have been done. But it, what it really means is in order for Amory to have fit in this cooler, he would have had to mistreat and manipulate her body to fit in all the way. And that shows how much he did not care about her. Right. And how even if he didn't kill her, the way he treated her body afterwards. Yep. Is more of like an accessory to a crime than... Yeah, and it ain't good. Yeah. All right? Yeah. So, and we know he's capable of it. Oh, I for do. sure. Well, mm-hmm. let's go back to, I don't even remember her name now, but part one, his lover from part one. Right. Um, you know, he tried to get her killed. Yeah. After all of that time and evidence, though, they did have a verdict. Tom Capano was found guilty in the murder of Anne-Marie Fahey. Tom found out about his verdict three days later and was... Just completely emotionless. Mm. And he arrived in court to hear his sentence, which would either be serving life in prison or being sentenced to death by lethal injection. Now, really quick history lesson before we start. In Delaware at this time, or, yeah, in Delaware before this, I think, the jury was able to decide sentences. But then there was a trial that happened, like, literally, like, three to five years before this happened. Right. That changed that. So certain judges would respect their jury's opinion and take them into consideration, but the judge had the final say so. That's right. That's right. But Judge Swain Lee was one of those ju- or judges who did take the jury's consideration and opinion. Mm. And before sentencing, of course, there was the victim impact statement. Both Tom's brothers, Jerry and Lewis, got on the stands. On the stands. <laughs> On the stands. Got on the stand with tears in their eyes, asking the judge to spare their brother's life. Kay, Tom's ex-wife, also spoke, saying, quote, I'm not here to stand by my man. Uh, I am repulsed by his vile acts as anyone here. But for everything he has done, he has been a loving father. What the fuck? (laughs) And she ruined it. End quote. She ruined it. Which, I do... how was this guy a good dad? I it's hard for me to wrap my head around that. It is strange, but it seems he was a good dad. Uh, yeah, I agree. And I Man. think what she's saying is it would very much hurt my children to see their father die. And I I, I understand. I think she's coming there more of for a representative of her child or children than That's she right. is for Tom. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Asking for him life but in prison than right. death just because of her children. I mean, I I honestly can't. Yeah. I kids. honestly can't say I. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. So, Marguerite, though, Tom's old mother, comes wheeling out in front of the jury. She and was wheeling. I wish y'all could have seen the hand motion. The Steve. wheeling out. She was wheeling. Oh, wheeling right. and dealing. Wheeling and dealing. And let me just read you what this old hag said. Quote, my son is not a murderer. He is not guilty of killing Anne-Marie. Oh, I feel sorry for her, but he didn't do it. He's too good of a person to hurt anybody. He did wrong by not calling 911 when she was hurt, but he didn't do it. I don't care what anybody says, and nobody will ever convince me that he did. I love him. I need him. Please don't kill my son. Don't spare my son for me and his family. 
Please spare my son. I'm sorry. Please spare my son for me and his family and for his daughters. End quote. Which, yes, it's her son and she sees the good in him. I would say that for my kids. But he took someone else's loved one away. So, of course, it's easy for me to say. My mama would have said that for me. I mean, you know, like. Yeah. I get it. But I don't know. When you throw it and say, like, no one's going to convince me that he did it. Like. That's a bit much. You, I think what she should have said was, maybe we shouldn't have gone with the whole, my son is not guilty of killing Amory Fahey, because, like, he is. Yeah. Maybe we should just kind of steer away from the crime and maybe just beg for his life. I don't know. Right, right, right. <laughs> like, uh, I, oh, great. She didn't have to put all that in. Right. He just, I, I'm sorry, but he just does not deserve to be spared for his mother. It just no. doesn't matter to me. Uh-uh. He does, him, What I think would have should have happened was he deserved to sit on death row alone for, you know, how old is he? Probably 60 years at this time. Yeah. So maybe another 10, 20 years until he's like about to die and then given lethal injection. Right. And then, I mean, it's fairly humane. Yeah. I mean, he should live a very but... miserable, lonely life. No TV, no card games, no, no pastor, becoming pastor of whatever. Yeah. Uh-uh. And his mother, Marguerite, is an enabler. And probably yeah. one of the reasons her children exactly. turned out the way they She's did. She's probably been enabling his ass and getting him out of trouble his whole life. Oh, well, that's right. And he's been doing the same thing for his brothers. Nobody's done anything wrong. They always cover their asses. Right. I mean, you know, whatever. Yeah. Now, I'm going to briefly read you a teensy bit of what Tom said when it was his turn to speak. But boy, oh boy. He said, quote, I hope you can appreciate it. It is very difficult for me to speak to people who have already rejected me in your mind. What's the use? You've made your decision. And I'd be less than honest if I say I didn't. If I didn't say we're still reeling from it. End quote. So, first of all, I don't know how anyone in that courtroom rejected him. Right. And also, he is trying to gaslight the jury, talking about, what's even the point in getting up here and talking to y'all when y'all have already found me guilty? What a little baby. Yeah. Woo-hoo. Wah-wah-wah. He sucked. Get over yourself. Okay. He never once apologized or admitted to what he did to Anne-Marie. He never looked at her family and said sorry for mm. taking their sister. He talked a lot about what of a great father he was and a dedicated public servant. Tom said he was an amazing man who was slandered by the media and didn't deserve to sit in jail. Again, get over yourself. Yeah. Right. When it came to the jurors that had to decide what Tom's fate was, it was 10 out of 12 jurors believed Tom did, in fact, put enough planning into the crime nice. and voted to put him to death. Weeks later, Judge Swain Lee addressed the courtroom and Tom saying, quote, Tom Capano does not face judgment today because friends and family failed him. He faces judgment because he is a ruthless murderer who feels compassion for no one and remorse only for the circumstances in which he finds himself. Yes. He is a malignant force from whom no one he deems disloyal or adversarial ever beautiful thank you can be secure even if he is incarcerated for the rest of his life no one except the defendant will ever know exactly how or why Anne marie fahey died what is certain is that it was not a crime of passion but rather a crime of control by all accounts she has ceased to be the defendant's lover but had never escaped the sphere of influence 
control and manipula- manipulation. Anne-Marie could not be permitted to end the relationship unless he said so. She could not be allowed to reject him. He chose to destroy a possession rather than lose it. To execute an escaping human channel. End quote. Boo. So, first of all, mic drop Judge Swain Lee. Yeah. Um, because, yeah, so. Judgey. Yeah, Judgey. So basically, I, I really love what he says at the beginning because what Tom Capano said throughout the, you know, what he made it seem like throughout the entire trial and right. his victim impact statement and all that crap. I'm only here because of them. Yep. Jerry's lying. Right. Debbie failed me. This she's leaving. That's she's it. doing that. Right. And Judge is like, no, he's not here and because of his friends and family failing him. He's here mm-hmm. because he's a murderer. Right. And has a very awesome. huge lack of compassion and remorse. Yep. Awesome. And I just really like my drop. Bam, blam. Yep. So, the jury's Love decision it. for the death penalty did, in fact, stand. The judge found it appropriate, so Tom Capano was sentenced to death by lethal injection in January of 1999. Is he still on death row? I will get to that. Of course, Tom was not going to settle on death row, so in March of 2006, he filed an appeal. And I'm sure he filed multiple appeals, but this is just one I'm going to talk about. He tried claiming everything under the sun from media slander to ineffective counsel. At this time, the prosecution was tired of dealing with him, so they approached Emery's family and asked them if they were okay with downgrading Tom's sentence to life in prison and take away the death penalty. This was an effort to save time, money, and the pain of going through another trial. The family agreed as long as he was locked away and never able to do that to someone again. Now, I personally cannot say I would have been so nice. I think I would have fought. I'm a very resilient and determined person, though. And this man deserved to die. I mean... Oh, well, just hold your horses. So, Ferris Warren, who was the district attorney now, told the judge that it didn't matter because Tom would die in prison. And by September of 2011, Warren's predictions came true. Tom Capano was found dead in his cell from sudden cardiac arrest at 61 years old. I was about to say, I was hoping he got shanked. No. Like with a toothbrush filed off. Bam, bam, bam. Bam, bam. No. No bam, bams. Shit. Cardiac arrest. Apparently, his health had been on the decline for a while, but that was because Tom had just let himself go completely. He never got up and did anything. He constantly ate and gained a ton of weight since his trial. Judge Swain Lee said that he actually, like, truthfully, honestly believes that Tom ate himself to death because his appeals had ran out and he knew he had a heart condition. Like, his whole family Tom Capano, rest in pain. Rest in pain. Now, I read briefly about Joseph and Lewis, two of the remaining three Capano brothers, having a legal battle over the state once Tom was dead. Mm-hmm. But I don't know the outcome because I didn't care enough to find out. Right. And then Marguerite followed her son in death on February 4th, 2013, at the age of 89. And wow. then a couple years later, in August of 2015, Joseph Capano died at the age of 62 from a heart attack as well. Wow. Now, I'm going to end this out on Cole McConnelly. This is, you know, he said it best when he said, quote, I do believe this case served as a model for the principle that no one is above the law. Mm-hmm. No matter how wealthy you are, no matter how well connected you are, when the justice system when the justice system works, you will pay the penalty for criminal actions. End quote. Bam. Colm Connolly, you know, this was his first Myrtle tri- M- Myrtle. Myrtle. This is his first murder trial. Yep. And it was his last. 
Oh. He never tried another one ever again, and he's currently serving as a U.S. District Court judge. I hear you. So rock on, Colm. And rock that on. is the end of Anna Marie Fahey. Craziness. I really hate that her body has never been recovered. That's so sad. Um, but they do have a memorial for her, and... It takes a cold mother to do something like that to somebody's family. Yeah, you're a killer, but... To take I, her away forever. Yeah, and the way he, yeah, ah, it sucks. And the reason he did it, he did it because she didn't want him anymore. She was done with him. Yeah, and he didn't like not having that control. Yep. So sad. So so sad. Well, I enjoyed it very very much. Sorry to job. leave you guys hanging for like two three weeks Gosh, for part three. <laughs> yes, it was a long yikes. Time. Um, but we're back and better than ever. This will be yeah. released on January 3rd. Tuesday. That's so exciting. Midnight I'm tonight. I'm to make this happen. Wait. Yeah. Midnight tonight? Yeah, as in like eight you hours. Know that confuses me. I know what you mean. But I love you. I love you all. Yes. To our listeners, thank you for thank sticking with us. We have listening. so many listeners. Like, our listenership has doubled. So exciting. Like, 2% in China. I mean, China. 2% in Australia. 2% in the UK. Mm -hmm. um we're so happy that you all are listening to us tips suggestions y'all know the drill uh you can follow us on instagram at ill-natured pod you need to join our facebook group ill-natured podcast um tiktok us at ill-natured pod and if you ever want to email uh, a sleazeball like show ill-natured at <laughs> yahoo.com i'm just kidding is that right ill-natured at yeah. yahoo.com I mean, hey, whatever, I'll take it. Yeah, Ill-naturedpod at yahoo.com. We love emails. Yikes. We love you guys. Listen in. We'll have one every Tuesday for a long time. We love you. And we'll catch you guys on the flip side. Peace.